The National Archives podcast series, The Huns Have Got My Gramophone, presented by Andrew McCarthy and Amanda Jane Doran. This talk was recorded on the 22nd of January 2015 at the National Archives, Kew. We've been working on this project for quite a long time because, as um, many of you all know, if you do research yourselves, trying to track track down material from the early 20th century can be really quite tricky. And um, in my previous existence in the archive at Punch, um, I was always being called upon to find engravings of Queen Victoria or Disraeli or wonderful political cartoons that summed up very complex historical situations. Um, But increasingly I found myself drawn to the, obviously the humorous cartoons, but also the bits and pieces that a lot of people didn't see. Uh, Most of the volumes of Punch had the advertisements removed. So in your libraries and archives, um, no matter how hard you looked, you probably wouldn't find them. And um, it gives us a a completely different view, really, um, of what was going on what goods and services people were being were, were buying or were the advertisers and market, marketers were hoping that people would buy. Um, but I suppose we had to start off by thinking about advertising itself. It's, it's still quite a young art or science, whichever way you like to look at it. Is it just a form of decoration or just a blunt sales tool? I mean, in a way, it's a bit of both. And um, I was lucky enough to work on a project um, to do with with motor motor cars and the AA, um, which was looking at advertisements from the 1920s and 1930s, which were very, very beautiful, but really weren't much more than... um, beautiful mirrors of the, the kind of life you'd like to have. Um, they, they showed beautifully dressed women and men, you know, in sort of Ascot or, um, you know, some other desirable social setting. Um, but at the time, I mean, I just put them together literally as pages that were going to look beautiful, uh, that people would just want to buy as a sort of glorified stocking filler, really. But thinking about the First World War, um, advertising, as I say, was a science that was developing then, the more we started to look at those images, the more we started to realise that they were reflecting really quite big social changes. So in a way, you could almost look at the advertisements as social documents themselves. Obviously, the main thing that you have to bear in mind with advertising is that it it isn't true. It's some kind of story or narrative that's being produced by by the client, by the manufacturers, by the people making the goods that they're trying to sell. But at the same time, it can give you a very intimate glimpse into people's lives, into either what they wanted to buy, the kind of life they wanted to have, or what they actually needed. And as, as I say, life was changing so quickly for men and women during the years of the First World War, by looking at what people were buying, it actually does give you a, an additional insight into what was going on. So as I say, we started by looking at um, magazines well-known and not so well-known. Punch was obviously one of the better-known magazines, and through my inside knowledge, I knew there was a set of Punch in the British Library that still had all the advertisements in. So that was a good start. But then we started to look much more broadly at newspapers, at the Times, at the Mirror. The Times didn't have very many illustrations at all, very few advertisements with pictures. Um, Burberry sort of crept in, Aquascutum, but it wasn't, there wasn't, it wasn't really a vehicle for, for embellished advertising during the early years of the First World War. Um, the Daily Mirror had been launched not even ten years before the, before the war, and that had been launched specifically um, to show news photographs, which again were very, very unusual usual and very expensive to produce. So we we started looking at quite a broad range of um, journals, magazines and newspapers to try and see what was being advertised, how it was being advertised and the kind of artists um, who were used to to actually 
actually make that advertising. Um, and as I said, Punch was a very important source, not only of the actual advertisements, but there were also comments uh, on the whole advertising industry. And um, I'll read you the caption just in case it's not clear. This one says, This is not an ASC man guarding stores. It is merely an average infantryman with the ordinary allowance of commodities if we are to believe the advertiser's account of what is indispensable. So this is 1915, so we're already getting the sort of cynicism creeping in um, that people are opportunistic and they're trying to actually um, use the war as a market uh, to press goods on people and particularly on soldiers. Um, Andrew in the second half of the talk will go into the kind of gadgets, equipment and uniform um, that were being advertised widely. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about um, the trench coat initially and then the effect uh, on women, uh, women at work, how they're portrayed in advertising and also the kind of, um, the kind of workwear um, that that they were actually purchasing. So, as I say, we can see the cynicism creeping in already. Um, the, it, the market is developing. It's possibly slightly out of control. But, obviously, this is punch. Um, and, uh, as I say, the, the, there are all sorts of spurious things. It voice guns for sergeants, tooth powder, <laughs> lip salve, corned beef, bloater paste, dispensables and indispensables, obviously. And to, to go on to further indispensables... Um, this was really the sort of breakthrough image, if you can have one in a book that's you know, full of rather humorous things. This was the breakthrough image that we found in our research um, because uh, we, we, um, we discovered that of all the apparel, really, the trench coat was the most significant at the beginning of the war. Um, it was based on, obviously, garments that had been worn you know, for up to 100 years in previous conflicts and, and also in you know, sort of sporting um, but this was the first garment that was actually advertised as a trench coat. The weather conditions at the front dictated, um, to an extent, the kind of warfare that was going on, as well as the battle dress um, and the weaponry. Um, and the winter of 1914 was absolutely atrocious. Uh, there were gales and floods, and it had followed on from a very, very hot and sultry summer and early autumn, um, when armies had actually been moving about. Uh, but by September, uh, Sir John French had given orders to entrench, and um, so the, the, the troops were, were stuck there. And um, early on in December in, in 1914, um, there, was, there was an article in The Times which gives you a hint about the kind of equipment and the kind of clothing um, that officers um, were, you know, were going to be useful to officers at the front. So I'll just read you a little piece. Hints to officers called to the front. Uh, trench life had begun. Here we are. A sword is a very uncommon object in the field. It is inconvenient to carry. It's very awkward to tuck away in a trench. And when one is at close quarters with the enemy, it is distinctly inferior to a bayonet. I would personally rather carry a battle axe. He continues, it's best to carry a greatcoat or a Burberry. I prefer the latter. The going is very bad. So waterproofs weren't really regulation issue um, in the army. I think they p possibly were in the Navy, but I mean, Andrew would know probably more, more about that. Um, and only officers were actually allowed to wear them over their uniforms. But they were popular items in spite of their expense. Um, the thresher there is six guineas, and that's sort of average to expensive. Um, there's, there's a whole range um, from about £2.10 shillings for a short trench mac, uh, four guineas for an unlined Burberry, but this one's got a rather special lining, um, which, is, which um, the, with Thresher and Glenny insist is wind-wet and mud-resisting. 
Um, Thresher and Glenny still exist um, just off the Strand um, in one of the temple courts, middle temple court, I think it is. Um, I don't think they produce trench coats these days. They're much more a bespoke um, shirt and legal gear outfit. Um, but they certainly made their fortune in this period by producing the trench coat. And as I said, they were actually the first tailors in London to specifically refer to their garment as a trench coat. Um, the, um, it soon became not just um, an item that was really indispensable for officers, but it also became a fashion item. And um, uh, it's, it's very interesting to see, as I say, early, as early as December 1914, how quickly it caught on. And in the popular press and in Punch, you can see... Um, cartoons and jokes about the young women at work uh, on the tube in their, in their rather um, dashing trenches, as they, as they called them. Anyway, to get back to the front and the kind of trench coats that were, um, that were being worn in France, as I say, the thresher has got this new double-breasted design, but um, this is what Aquascutum um, had been offering and had actually been offering ever since the Boer Wars. So you can see this is really a rather voluminous, voluminous coat, single-breasted and perfect if you're on a horse or something like that, dashing around. Um, but it's, it's basically a rather old-fashioned garment, but very roomy. Um, they, they, tr- they went down the endorsement front, and they, they, they specifically mentioned, um, I think it was Baden-Powell had used this coat, Kitchener had had one, um, and um, you know th- this was these really the 19th-century version of a trench, trench coat. But the Burberry is the one that we all have heard of and, uh, you know, still in existence now. And um, Thomas Burberry um, was really responsible for an absolute revolution um, in apparel in the mid-19th century when he invented gabardine. Um, He was really, in the first place, involved in um, designing clothing for sportsmen and adventurers. And he got his endorsements by the end of the century and the beginning of the 20th century. Um, The people who really were very keen on Burberries were people like Amundsen and Scott. Um, So if you think of um, modern sportswear and sort of breathable fabrics as being a new 21st century phenomenon... You're quite wrong. Thomas Burberry got there first, and he made an absolute fortune by um, initially designing gear for you know, hunting, shooting, and fishing types, but also farmers and um, people who generally worked on the land who needed robust, breathable clothing. And obviously, um, this was another element that was indispensable on the front, as I mentioned, where the, where the weather conditions were just so, so atrocious. Um, Burberry himself is a very interesting character. As I say, he was part of the rational dress movement in the 19th century. He was a very, very strong, convicted um, Christian, a Baptist. And by the time of the First World War, he was in his declining years. Uh, He was also... You can't go so far as to say he was a pacifist, but he was very much dismayed um, that the use that his, his, his... um, designs were being were being used you know, in, in battle, and um, in in his final years, um, the majority of the of the profits that were made from the sales of trench coats, um, he actually gave to various charities. Um, so it's, he never intended the trench coats to be used on the battlefield. Um, as I mentioned, as the coat um, became the coat of the moment, the design of the moment. It was extended um, for use for women as well. Um, This is an advertisement from the Tatler in 1917, and um, you can see that the double-breasted design has really really taken off. 
very, very practical. Um, and um, enormous changes in women's clothing have already started to be made. Um, the hemline has gone up three or four inches. Um, there's, no, there's no sort of padding in the shoulders. It's pretty unlikely that the lady wearing that particular coat is wearing a corset. Um, even at the beginning of the war, um, I've got some, uh, a slide to show you later, at the beginning of the war, most women were still pretty heavily corseted. Um, but in 1915, the, Depart the Board of Trade sent out um, an edict um, to try and get as many women as possible to enlist in some form of occupation. Um, and as women were... Um, were actually taking up all sorts of different employment, so their clothing had to change pretty drastically. This is quite a good example of a sort of tailored uniform um, that was pr seen pretty widely. This is a Red Cross lady worker um, who is being exhorted to look beautiful at all times, no matter how dangerous the work she's doing, no matter how under fire she might be or whatever, or you know, changing the oil in the car. Um, your beauty is obviously your duty... <laughs> Your duty is to be beautiful at all times. This is my favourite slogan of the whole war period. Beauty on duty has a duty to beauty. And um, this, this appeared throughout the war years and was used to advertise uh, Vinolia vanishing cream, their toothpaste, a whole range of sort of cosmetic preparations. And, um, but again, you see, what's fascinating from our point of view is it shows us maybe a glamorised version of what this Red Cross worker was doing, but it shows us exactly what she was working, and to an extent it shows us a sort of idealised version of her working environment um, as a driver. Um, and from the, as I say, from the, from, the costume, from, the, from the costume history point of view, it's very interesting to see that her uniform represents a sort of halfway house, really, between the very formal uniforms where women would still have been, as I say, heavily corseted to the, the trench coat that we were just looking at, which shows a very modern and um, relaxed um, sort of physique, really. Um, I was working on an exhibition a couple of years ago um, locally in Tunbridge Wells, where I live, and we had a Red Cross workers' uniform. It was actually a, an exhibition to do with the suffrage movement in West Kent, and one of the um, prominent suffragists had gone straight into the Red Cross at the beginning of the war. And um, whatever we did to this uniform that we had, we were trying to display, it just didn't sit correctly at all. And the costume curator and I were racking our brains to work out why it just didn't look right, the costume. Because, as I say, I mean, it almost looks like a Second World War uniform. It looks reasonably modern. But we found that when we wanted to actually put it on a mannequin, without a corset underneath, it didn't sit cor correctly. And that actually gave us the most extraordinary shock as sort of modern women to think that um, women doing those kind of jobs by halfway through the war were still pretty, pretty heavily corseted. That was our sort of eureka moment, really, and gave us more insight than you know, look, looking at all these images, really, about what it was actually like um, from the inside. Um, women who'd gone into factories and working-class women who were running laundries and that kind of thing would have probably improvised uh, their own undergarments but if you were um, a VAD, if you were working in the, uh, in the Red Cross, you were much more likely to be a volunteer. You were much more likely to be middle class or upper class. And they were the women who seemed to be more restricted than anybody else. They were the uniforms and the costumes that were still pretty, pretty 19th century or certainly Edwardian. And this is, a, this is another image from the end of the war, which we found in the Tatler, which really shows the opposite end of the spectrum, and her costume is even more mannish, looks something much more really out of the 1930s. 
it's a very modern silhouette altogether um, with a sort of relaxed waistline um, and, um, and very you know, relaxed sleeves as well. That's another, another sign that um, the Edwardian silhouette is fast disappearing. The hourglass shape, shape has completely disappeared. So this, this one, as I say, just gives you a few more examples of what I was talking about, really, with the VADs. Um, at the beginning of the war, uh, the voluntary aid detachment um, was a tiny, tiny group of 2,500 um, volunteers. And by the end of the first year of, of the war, there were 74,000 74, women had signed up. Um, the majority of them, as I said, were upper and middle class girls. They weren't trained in any form of nursing, um, and uh, initially they were you know, viewed with quite a lot of suspicion um, in hospital settings. Um, they, were, they weren't trained equally. They weren't paid at all, and in many cases they had to fund their own board and lodging, and in some cases their training and uniform as well. Um, but this, is, this just goes to show that if you, if, you ha- if you were sort of middle class and you had a bit of money tucked away, you could still nip down to Fortnum's for silver service and a cup of tea, where you were likely, well, almost certainly, would have been served by another young lady. Um, most of the shops, businesses, and even the gentlemen's clubs in London by 1917 were um, staffed entirely by women. Uh, there are some wonderful accounts of changes in, in, in the, on the London streets by various journalists, particularly... Um, chap called Jeffries and Mrs. Peel, who wrote in the Daily Mail, who wrote a great deal about um, everyday life um, in London um, during the years of the First World War, and described how men were disappearing from, from every form of employment. But it's nice to see that you know, the VADs are still looking rather sniffy. So um, you know, the um, women may be out and about, they may have a lot more freedom and independence, but the social order is still there. You know, they're obviously much more middle class than the poor old tweenie. Um, who they can still sort of order about a bit. So um, some things are changing, some things aren't changing quite so quickly. Um, Many women went into the VAD movement and many um, went into hospitals as nurses. Um, Some were so extraordinarily um, enterprising, they just nipped over the channel and set up first aid posts themselves. Unusual, but it did happen. Um, Elsie Knocker and Mary Chisholm set up a Red Cross post in the Belgian village of Pervise, and um, their bravery was recognised by a whole stream of medals. And I think it was Elsie Knocker actually ended up marrying a Belgian baron, so she did quite well out of it altogether. (laughs) Anyway, uh, there were extensive advertisements for... um, medical supplies, for um, nurses' uniforms. Um, the, the, um, on the whole, at the beginning of the war, most women in um, medical establishments went into nursing. There were obviously small numbers of women doctors. Initially, they found it very hard to get to the front. And um, the Scottish surgeon and suffragist, suffragist Elsie Inglis actually proposed to the War Office that hospitals should be set up staffed entirely by women, the war office told her to go home and sit still. But she did not, fortunately. Um, She established the Scottish Women's Hospitals um, Service uh, for uh, overseas instead. And the French government, the Serbian government, the Russians and the Romanians all accepted her model of a women-run hospital and welcomed her expertise. Um, She was an extraordinary woman. I mean, you could write just a whole book about her exploits. And she, she devoted herself untiringly 
um, during, during the First World War. Sadly, she died at the very end of it. Um, not surprisingly, as she was still travelling between Serbia, France, Russia and Romania and advising as well as um, acting as a surgeon all that time. But I'm glad to say there is still a hospital in Glasgow named after her. So, um, but I think she, she's one of the people who really deserves very serious recognition uh, you know, this year or over the years of the, the commemoration of the First World War. She was an absolutely extraordinary woman and um, was extremely persistent in the face of quite a lot of opposition. So extraordinary advances were made in nursing during the Great War and um, in, as far as blood transfusions, saline drips and also radiography. So, um, as I say, these advertisements just give us a, a tiny, tiny glimpse, really, into, into what women increasingly were allowed to get up to. Um, this is an image from the end of the war, um, which is one of my absolute favourites. It's by an artist called Charles Sykes, who um, actually created some of those beautiful advertisements of cars I was telling you about just before. Um, in the 1920s and 1930s, he also designed the... Um, Spirit of Ecstasy for the front of Rolls-Royce. He worked. He was a notable sculptor as well as an illustrator. And in many ways, I think this image really um, encapsulates all the changes that were happening to working women during the First World War. Um, you can just see the silhouette of a lady window cleaner in jodhpurs, gaiters and boots outside the apartment of a very dashing young man, sort of Bertie Wooster-type interior there. And instead of a young man spying on a rather beautiful young lady, it's a rather beautiful young lady window cleaner spying on a young man. Mm-hmm. So um, that, that's, that shows you how, how much you know, fashions have changed, how much society has changed, how much attitudes are changing. Uh, you know, years, just two or three years before that, a woman would never have been allowed to dress like that, do that kind of work, um, or, or, um, or in, in the case of middle-class and upper-class girls, undertake any kind of work unchaperoned so it's the sort of social um, revolution um, is sort of hinted at in all sorts of ways and through this absolutely beautiful sort of art deco illustration which again is at the sort of forefront of, uh, of graphics as well and this just shows you um, there was still a commitment to femininity despite the, the ga- ga- gaiters and the jodhpurs um, and um, more and more department stores um, were producing ready-to-wear clothes and which were indispensable to women working um, in factories in particular. Um, the kind of employment that they were taking, taking up, particularly in munitions factories, um, allowed women for the first time um, to be totally independent and um, I think Andrew's got some m- a marvellous um, illustration of how women were actually able to get around, start learning to drive, and buy their own motorcycles as well. So women are starting to be freed from the tyranny also of dressing in- differently for morning, tea time, and dinner time. And this is an advertisement for a tea dress, which, heaven forbid, could actually do for all times of day. <laughs> so, as I say, the revolution, the social revolution is, um, is going in all sorts of different directions. And this is just a just a round up. I'll just show you what I was talking about um, with what was going on underneath. So these were the kind of corsets, and the kind of corset that would have been under that that costume that I was telling you about just before, uh, the Red Cross um, uniform. And this is still a boned um, a boned corset where a woman would be their movement would be really really restricted. Um, bit by bit, as I say, women were improvising their own underwear, and um, there's an 
all sorts of stuff coming over from the continent as well. The French had developed something called the Tango Corset, which I'd love to see, um, which, is, which was devised before the First World War so you could bend backwards, you know, when you were dancing the tango. Um, anyway, rather clever girls who, who, who knew about these things um, ordered these tango and sports corsets and started wearing them under their uniforms because then they found they could actually move. So that was a bonus. Anyway, um, just to finish up, there was still a bit of frivolity going on and um, Venn's underwear um, really sort of highlighted the need for silky things and lots of lace and ruffles. Um, but in actual fact, many of their lovely cheeky rhymes that went with these, these advertisements uh, often also referred to the kind of war work that women were doing. Um, and this one, I'll just read it to you quickly. Uh, Violet Velma Vere de Vere was a dainty, delicious, delicate deer, delightfully dressed from top to toe, because she always got it at Venn's, you know. Exquisite, filmy, lacy things, my imagination, you see, has wings, were Violet's dearest dream of delight by day and whispering gently at night. <laughs> now, the very last thing you'd have thought she'd do was work on the land, but she did, it's true, for she couldn't nurse and she wouldn't knit, but she was awfully keen on doing her bit. Never a day, but she rakes and digs and plants potatoes and feeds the pigs. But doesn't she just enjoy her Sundays when she revels again in her dainty hungers? <laughs> anyway, it's given you a bit of a sort of whistle-stop tour um, through giving you some insight into the way women's lives were changing, how advertising was sort of creating these dreams, but also at the same time reflecting these enormous, enormous changes that were going on. And now I'm going to hand you over to my colleague, um, Andrew McCarthy, who um, is an expert really on the sort of military side of the war and all the gadgets that were developed um, during that period as well. Thanks very much. The cuffed Huns have got my gramophone. Life on the Western Front wasn't unrelentingly miserable. Soldiers weren't under fire all the time. There were quiet sectors. The Lieutenant Charles Carrington, who was in the Royal Warwickshire Regiment, said in the spring of 1916, one was having a sort of outdoor camping holiday with the boys with a slight spice of danger to make it more interesting. Even in active sectors, men could go home on leave, see a show and bring back the gramophone records of the songs. Victor Purcell, who was an officer in the Green Howard, said... One great escape was into the world of the theatre and the glittering palaces of Ruritania, where barbed wire, passports and closing time were unknown. Brilliant lights, gay tunes and pretty girls, brought together by the thinnest of plots, conferred on the audience a temporary and light-headed immortality. Gertie Miller's Chalk Farm to Camberwell Green, though I never heard her sing it except on my decagramophone, Regis for me, seen in the line at Armentier to the day, hour and minute. Judging by the date of this advertisement, this soldier's gramophone was captured in Operation Michael, which was one of the last big German attacks of the war, and 7,000 British infantrymen were killed and 21,000 captured in one day. And he was very lucky that the Huns had only got his gramophone rather than him. Now, Huns and the reason for the use of the word Huns. It's a very interesting story. Soldiers tended to call the Germans Jerry as a kind of singular or collective noun, but the Germans were called Huns in the popular press because of Kaiser Wilhelm II, the chap over on the left. He was very well known for making intemperate speeches. Valentine Williams 
who was Reuters' man in Berlin for five years before the war, said that he never went to bed without wondering what the Kaiser had been up to. Troop inspections, where the press and the public were excluded, were the Kaiser's favourite occasions for making indiscreet speeches. Courtiers always made frantic efforts to keep the stories out of the papers, but, of course, the stories always leaked out. At Bremerhaven, on July the 27th, 1900, there were German marines about to embark for China as part of an international force to suppress the Boxer Rebellion. And the Kaiser gave a speech. No pardon will be given. Prisoners will not be taken. Just as the Huns, under their King Etzel, acquired a reputation a thousand years ago which makes them appear mighty even today in tradition and fairy tales, so, through you, may the name of the Germans resonate in China a thousand years hence, so that no Chinaman will ever again dare look askance at a German. And after that, in the British popular press, the Germans were always Huns. And when the Kaiser saw the courtiers' censored versions of his speeches, he said, You've left the best bit out. Now this was in Punch in December 1914. And Jesse Boot had taken over his father's herbalist business in Nottingham. And he'd realised that his working-class customers were no longer buying his father's traditional herbal remedies. What they wanted was nationally advertised medicines. And he thought, well, what are we going to do to keep the business going? This was, I think, 1870s. And he started to advertise cut-price nationally advertised medicines in the local paper, and the takings shot up. And that was the beginning of Boots the Chemist. And the, Jesse Boot himself took a very, very interest, close interest in advertising. And this is an extremely well-thought-out adv- advertisement because Harrison, Charles Harrison, who was a regular punch artist, had been hired to do it. So as soon as you looked at the double-page spread, you at first thought, oh, it's a punch cartoon. Then you realised, oh, it's an advertisement for boots, and you were sucked in. And your eye, once you start to look at it, as it says at the bottom, see opposite page, and your eye is drawn to the dense copy on the other page, which lists in great detail products which are equal or superior to the German product replaced. It's highly unlikely, given the Royal Navy's close blockade of Germany, that anything would have got through, but it's a very good marketing technique. And it has to be borne in mind that a lot of companies were faced with great problems at the beginning of the war, because suddenly their continental markets had gone. John Buchan had not yet published The 39 Steps or any of the other bestsellers, and He was a writer. He'd written things like a book on fishing, but since 1907, he'd been the literary advisor for the Scottish publisher and printer Thomas Nelson's. And suddenly, and as was common with some publishers in those days, they had their own printing plant, and suddenly all the German orders disappeared overnight. Well, what are we going to do? We're going to have to lay the staff off and not be able to pay them, and the company might go under. What are we going to do? And they had a think... um, and they came up with the idea of doing Nelson's History of the War. Buchan, as I said, was not yet famous. They asked Conan Doyle to write the History of the War. He was unavailable. And so Buchan said, all right, I'll do it myself. He had a research assistant, but Buchan wrote it himself. And it was a huge, huge success. Um, published. The first part came out in February 1915, and it 
enabled Nelsons to keep the men in work and the plant going, and all the profits and Buchan's royalties went to the families of the Nelsons men who had enlisted and to war charities. Anti-live barbed wire glove. I mean, this one is a bit trying it on because electrified barbed wire was very, very rare indeed. There was no barbed wire, there was no mains electricity supply on the Somme. There was a tiny, tiny bit of electrified barbed wire on the outskirts of some Belgian cities. But it's interesting for the technique that it's using, which is save the lives of our men by sending them. This one is appealing to friends and relations. A very, very common slogan, which you could adapt to almost anything, was send a tin to your soldier friend. Lieutenant Charles Carrington again said, soldiers only thought about gadgets in a quiet sector of the line. Robert Graves, who spent much of the war in the same battalion of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, the Siegfried Sassoon, said that he began his frontline career decked out like a Christmas tree, as the soldiers used to say. He had a revolver, field glasses, wire cutter, whiskey flask, periscope and a compass. When he came back after he'd been wounded in January 1917, he took a pair of wire cutters and an electric torch. Now this is a splendid one. The Lifeguard Collapsible Periscope. And there's this magnificent um, P.G. Woodhouse dialogue. I say, old man, just look at that Hun sniper through my Lifeguard Periscope. By gad, the definition is topping. What's the price? Only 20 shillings complete. And they fitted these special mirrors to my old Lifeguard for one shilling and sixpence. We know from both written and photographic evidence that soldiers really did use periscopes. But were they any good? Yes, the most expensive ones were. This is a kind of hybrid. The most primitive ones were a Boy Scout sort, very similar to this, with a mirror at the top um, and a mirror at the bottom. This one is slightly more advanced in that there are little magnifiers. How good they were, I don't know. But the problem is as soon as a mirror appears over the top of the parapet, especially if the sun is reflecting on it, then it's highly likely that somebody's going to shoot at it. But you can see how useful, theoretically, it could be. But the very, very best sort of periscopes, which were indispensable to artillery officers, were very elaborate optical periscopes, like a telescope with two right-angled right bends in them. And the problem was they, required, they were very sophisticated. They required high-quality optical glass, which, of course, was made in Germany. And a lot of the periscopes were made in Germany. And as soon as the war breaks out that supply stops. And one member of parliament took to writing to the Times appealing for old periscopes and money to buy them, which he could send out to the army. And he got letters back from artillery officers saying, this is absolutely wonderful. We can see um, the trenches thousands and thousands of yards away. And especially when everything's jumbled up and the line kinks around, we can see very clearly which are the British trenches and which are the German trenches. But there was... Nonetheless, those periscopes still got broken, they still got shot at and damaged, and because there was no tradition of making optical glass in Britain before the war, it was very, very difficult to get such an industry started. And I do feel, or I haven't yet got any proof, that some of the people making these things were rather trying it on because they were very simple um, to make. I, I found one only the other day which has the extraordinary an advertisement which was in The Observer it has the most extraordinary name of it, the Hun Detector. 
made by the improbably named John Bull and Company, Bedford. Whether that's a made-up name or not, I do not yet know. Um, fountain pens. This is another one aimed at relatives. And soldiers were sending five million letters a week. Winston Churchill wrote from the trenches to his wife to ask for all sorts of things which she very dutifully bought and sent out to him. He wrote and asked her for a periscope. Unfortunately, I don't know what sort. He also wrote and asked for a, for a new fountain pen. And he wrote to his wife almost every day during his six months in the front-line trenches. And the letters were a mixture of affection for his wife Clementine and the children, descriptions of life in the trenches, and lists of kit that he needed. He told her that he loved her and that he kissed her photograph every night. It's difficult to say exactly how many soldiers used fountain pens. Uh, my father, Reginald McCarthy, who was a corporal in the East Yorkshire Regiment in the front line at Passchendaele in 1917, and Passchendaele, in terms of front line conditions, was as bad as it got. I've still got his notebook with his platoon roll of 57 men, and it's all written out beautifully in neat fountain pen. But how common this was, I do not know. I've just been rereading um, Testament of Youth by Vera Britton, and she was writing an account which she was told by survivors of the sinking of the hospital ship Britannic. And one nurse said, well, of course, you know, it was a terrible panic and I was, the ship was sinking, and I saved my fountain pen. So she had a fountain pen, and that was the first thing that she thought to save when the ship was going down. Um, Douglas Motorcycle for Lady War Workers, quite obviously aimed at munition workers, as you can see from the shelves in the background, and that some munition workers were extremely well paid. And before the war, you'd get advertisements for cars saying things like, your wife can drive it. Most manufacturers didn't have anything like this to sell. Douglas were quite fortunate in that they appeared to have the products available and products to sell. But most car and motorcycle manufacturers were busy making cars and lorries for the armed services and munitions. Uh, and, of course, few women had an independent income before the war. But by 1918, Douglas were advertising directly to women. And the needs of the armed services for drivers provided opportunities for women which could not have imagined, been imagined before the war. Muriel Thompson was 39 in August 1914, and she and her brothers were keen motorists, and she'd won, her first, she'd won the first motor race for women at Brooklands in 1908, where she averaged 50 miles an hour. And in January 1915, she joined the first aid nursing yeomanry as an ambulance driver. The British Army wouldn't accept women in the front line as drivers, and so she worked for the French and the Belgians. The British relented in January 1916, and in January 1918, she was in charge of an ambulance unit at Saint-Omer. The Germans bombed Arc heavily. The ammunition dump was hit, and there were shells exploding. The women were ordered to take cover, but they just carried on evacuating the wounded. 16 military medals and three croix de guerre were awarded to the women ambulance drivers for their bravery. Muriel Thompson was awarded both medals. That's a lovely advert, uh, but sadly it's, it's looking forward to peace and saying this is what we're going to have for you after the war, but sadly Errol Johnson, who were a Scottish motor manufacturer, they didn't survive 
Um, very long after the war, they went under in, I think, 19, 1931. Um, because they didn't innovate, they didn't have the kind of scientific and research and technological base that Rolls-Royce had. And Rolls-Royce only began building aeroplane engines because of the war. They took at, Their slogan was uncompromising. It said, the best car in the world. Uh, and their aero engine, which was the very first aero engine that Rolls-Royce had made, was based on the car engine of the Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost. Uh, this is magnificent. There is this army officer who looks a bit like the actor James Wilby. He's totally unconcerned as the shells go off behind him. <laughs> and his expression and the fact he's smoking his pipe, he's saying, or the, the message that he's giving is, I am a solid, reliable chap. You can depend on me. He doesn't even have a steel helmet. He's just got a soft hat, which is quite correct for the date because soldiers didn't get tin hats until uh, late 1915, early 1916. And people who served in the trenches said men couldn't eat under a bombardment. Pipes and cigarettes were relaxation. The tobacco advertisements often showed solid, reliable chaps such as Lord Kitchener or Admiral Jellicoe with a pipe in their mouth Nobody asked their permission. They just used their image uh, and stuck them in the adverts. Pipes were classless. The cartoonist Bert Thomas drew a very well-known poster entitled Arthur Moe Kaiser, which was issued in November 1914, and it showed a cheery old sweat of the British Expeditionary Force lighting his pipe before he shoulders arms and marches off to fight Jerry. That poster raised, and this is in 1914 money, £250,000 for the Daily Dispatch Tobacco Fund for the troops. Kenilworth cigarettes, you've seen it through. This was in the Illustrated London News in December 1918. The Kenilworth cigarette adverts were very, very sophisticated. There was always a soldier, in this case a soldier who's now back home again there was always a soldier or a airman i haven't seen any with sailors but that doesn't need to say there aren't any but it was a soldier or an airman with his wife or girlfriend and the faithful aberdeen terrier and he's clearly a demobilized officer but definitely not a guardsman because it was not done for members of the brigade of guards to smoke virginian cigarettes which these are the guards were only permitted it wasn't of course a written regulation but that was the how it was, they were only allowed to smoke Turkish cigarettes. It will take more than a few Kenilworth cigarettes. Sorry, the advert suggests that the cigarette will help the office to forget, but it's going to take more than a few Kenilworths to dull the memory of the early morning trench mortar fire and the cry of stretcher bearers when the mortars have found their target. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.